0: Hey, welcome to Win The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and welcome, welcome, welcome. Ah, uh, gosh. I have, well, how could I describe the last little while? As many of you will know, either because you live here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, or because you've heard me or you've seen something else, you may know, you probably know. We've been in a very long lockdown, and uh, we have just started to emerge from that. And it has been a time. And I think several weeks ago, I sort of I just hit the wall, and it's been a tough last few weeks. I kind of ran out of puff, and so uh, I've sat down to record a few times, taken a few deep breaths, and then had to go have a lie down. But look, we have just over the last couple of days emerged. Uh, at least to some extent, out of the lockdown of the last 15 weeks. And I feel, um, I don't know, it's a bit surreal. But I went out and had breakfast and a nice coffee this morning, and that felt good. And uh, so here I am, ready to go. Uh, you know, just a few weeks till Christmas, uh, so time to fire up uh, <laughs> I don't know that I've got a lot in me to fire up with but I've got enough in me to uh to share a few ideas with you. And uh and gosh, I mean it feels it, it's this weird experience and and I'm sure, you know, it's the whole pandemic has been a strange time where we're we're having this kind of collective shared experience and yet it's also very individual to each one of us. It's kind of this very individualized contextualized experience that each one of us has in different ways. And yet it's all a part of a shared experience that we're all going through together. And um, and it's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on. And sometimes just turning on the news, I feel a sense of dread. And then when I see the online conversations that people are having, if we can call them conversations, I suppose, and, and I see the impact of the pandemic and, you know, that just on its own is enough without all of the extremism and the conspiracies and the the threats and the... Violence, and then you know, there's climate change bearing down on us. So, so it's a lot to handle and a lot to hold. And I think sometimes we need to be able to just zero in on what's right in front of us and pay attention to the good and to the true, to the beautiful as it unfolds in our daily lives. And I think that's something that we need. It's restorative, and yet at the same time, uh, I think we need to be able to keep looking up and sensing just what is going on in the world so that we can be a part of whatever it means to bring a sense of life, maybe to bring even some peace or possibly some systemic change to things over time. Uh, and, and you know, I've been thinking a little bit lately too about joy and the fact that maybe uh, we could all do with a bit of joy. Uh, I know that I could. And I've, and I've thought before about how joy can be its own kind of resistance to dread, you know, not in his avoidance of reality, but joy as a kind of protest against those things which seek to rob our humanness and our hope. And um, so all of that to say, may you know some joy in your life this week. And I want to think about how in my own small way, uh, and perhaps in some upcoming stuff related to In The Shift, I, I can help tune into, I can help cultivate a sense of joy as a kind of resistance. So let's see where it takes us. For the meantime, if you've been listening along to the podcast, you'll know that in the last few episodes, I've been dealing with some of the problems and also some of the possibilities that I see in Christian faith, particularly in light of the last two to three years of this podcast and all the related conversations that have spun around it and that I've had with many of you as you've listened along and and, and, and other people who have been journeying this, this path of... You know, whatever language you want to call it, deconstruction, uh, reconstruction, reimagining, pulling apart, decolonization, you know, the, all of these interweaving ways of trying to understand just what it is that many of us are journeying through, perhaps as we move from something that we had toward um, towards something else. Some of us know what that something else is, and some of us don't. Um, and, and I'm trying to explore here, you know, what are some of the big challenges facing contemporary Christian faith? And, but also, are there still some possibilities, some resources within it that it can actually be helpful for us in our time? And in one of the previous episodes, uh, just recently, I spoke a bit about narcissism, uh, and <laughs> I spoke about the sociological observation we make about how often... Um, Movements of, of many kinds, but uh, religious movements in particular begin as often as these dynamic and disruptive movements on the fringes and on the margins, and then typically move toward the center, move toward structure and order, and something we call routinization, uh, and... And then this conservation of whatever gains or changes, you know, that were the original impetus of this movement uh, becomes the priority. So it becomes a movement towards conservation of change rather than the ongoing disruption of the status quo. And this happens in all sorts of ways. It actually happens in, in business as well, right? The disruptive outsider who rebels against the status quo. And then over time, if they're successful, they become the new juggernaut who crush all the competition with the same kind of single-minded force that they originally fought against. Um Obviously, in the context of our conversation here, we could talk about Christianity as that kind of thing, right? A marginal movement that then moves towards the center and gains all this power, which changes the very nature and shape of the, of the movement itself. Uh, and then more specifically, I, I've talked a little bit about Pentecostalism, which is the tradition that I've come from, which again was a, was a similar kind of movement that began on the margins and moved toward a consolidation and an obsession with, with power and with conserving its own kind of changes, uh, and so we talked about that a couple of episodes ago. And in this in this episode, I want to zero in on one aspect of this, I think, that is that is kind of related, that's problematic for Christianity today. And then I want to offer a different way of thinking about faith as a resource for us. Uh, and I want to talk about what happens when when faith and belief get stuck in concrete, you know, when they get locked in and locked down, and when unable to adapt and to change and to innovate and to rethink and to deconstruct and to reimagine. And I want to talk about how this concrete kind of faith often stems from a very concrete view of God, and that actually it can lead to some very harmful beliefs and practices towards people. And then I want to talk about dynamism, relationality, innovation, fluidity, faith and belief and ethics. Uh, yes, a faith that's connected to the past, of course, but is also dynamic and responsive in the present and open to the future. So, this is episode 52 of In the Shift. Let's get into it. <laughs> So one of the features of conservatism and in particular of fundamentalist forms of conservatism is the tendency to get stuck uh, in a moment in time and that moment is usually in the past. Whether it's a political fundamentalism of any kind you know, that binds so tightly to the political ideology of a past hero uh, that it's unable to actually adapt or change to a new context. Uh, we see the kind of political fundamentalism uh, for example, in, in North America. Hello, hello, North America, uh, where people are, you know, can be so tightly wedded to a document like the Constitution written in an entirely different time and context, de- dealing with a different set of challenges. And, and of course, we can value that. Um, but what you see is the kind of more conservative fundamentalism that says we're unable to actually allow any form of change or adaptation or innovation, even though our context is now vastly different. We can see this kind of attitude and orientation within religious fundamentalism, where faith gets boiled down to a set of very concrete beliefs and principles. And then no matter what new context or experience or information or data comes along, no matter what comes our way, there seems to be an inability to allow new insights to bring any kind of change or responsiveness. And, you know, we could look at some very specific forms of religious Christian fundamentalism as a very specific Niche within Christianity, um, but I think to be fair, the same kind of fundamental orientation—could to use that word fundamental—could be used for you know quite significant sections of uh, the Christian tradition in the present day. And, and this is something we have bumped into and explored in various ways over the past couple of years of in the shift. And I, and I think it's kind of understandable right? I mean, sociologists, again, as I mentioned in the introduction, would tell us there's a certain kind of inevitability to this, that if ideas take hold and they become a movement and that movement gains traction and, and we might say succeeds, then that movement often becomes institutionalized with rules and with creeds and with beliefs and so on. And then a lot of energy goes into conserving those things, trying to consolidate the change and hold to it, uh, and, and in some respects, that can be a really positive thing, right? This is how we man- develop meaningful traditions with symbols and language that hold deep meaning for us. There's a richness and a rootedness to the past that give us language and, and symbols and metaphor for describing reality that we may not be able to come up with on our own. So there's a sense of connectedness. There's a sense of language and meaning and symbol and richness and tradition that help us to navigate the world of humanness and of faith and of spirituality and of seeking connection. So there's loads of meaning that's found in the building of those traditions. And I and I think, to be honest, this is one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons why I still find myself attached to the Christian faith in the way that I do. Without the tradition of the Christian faith, I, I can find myself, and I think I would find myself, just sort of drifting into a vague spirituality that has no anchors and no hooks and no language with any sense of depth to it. And I, and I don't mean to say that everybody should hang on to it, but just to say that for me the the tradition itself offers me a conversation to join, even if I disagree with significant parts of it. It offers me a conversation to join, uh, rather than just sort of scrambling around by myself. And you know, the Jesus story and a couple of thousand years of, of our reflections on that, uh, they give me something to attach to, to find meaning in, to reflect on, to wrestle with, some insights and some resources uh, that comes from the wisdom of many of those who have lived before me. So this episode is not about needing to throw out all of our traditions or all of our connections to historic beliefs or to sacred texts or anything like that. But it is to ask what happens when we start to hold on so tightly to all of the specifics of our system that we actually become unable to lift up our eyes and to see the world around us and to see reality as it really is and to see real people in front of us for who they are. And we've talked about this before. like what happens when someone proposes that the earth is going around the Sun and, and the church can't cope with this kind of change because they don't think that's what the Bible says you know so they, they crush that person, they snuff them out to eliminate the disruption. And I think there's a, there's a certain uh, degree other than just the sociological movement towards institutionalization and the conservation of, of that institution. Uh, there's this psych- psychological phenomena going on here too, which is about our desire for certainty. And I think that's definitely one of the attractions of this whole kind of concrete framework for faith. It's comforting to feel like we've got a down. It doesn't necessarily mean that our lives are amazing, but we do feel like we know kind of what the deal is. We we know what the rules are. We know how to make our way in the world and we know how to make some sense of the various challenges life throws at us. So when you hear someone um, maybe asking a genuine question, uh they're struggling with something, maybe with some doubt or they're trying to they're looking at something and saying that doesn't really make sense given my experience, And the response might be something like, um, well, God says it, I believe it, and that settles it. (laughs) Something like that. Catchy, short, punchy, uh, clear, concrete, certain, not necessarily true. uh, But that almost doesn't matter, right? It feels true. It feels really comforting and clear. And this kind of concrete dogmatism is is really easy to get behind. You can create momentum with this kind of certainty because you can get everyone on board with the same ideas, the same goals, we're on the same page, we know the truth, we believe the same things about God, we agree about the main point of our lives, let's get to work, let's make it happen. Uh, so where you have a lot of certainty, you can often genuinely create energy and synergy and growth. And then anything that threatens this kind of momentum with uncertainty, for example, with questions and with doubt, well, it's just going to get in the way. Uh, and I know that some of my experiences within contemporary Pentecostal Christianity were like this, you know. So uh, you sort of, you you come across a challenge that you encounter in your life. Maybe you get sick. Ah, well, that's it's either a test of your faith or it's an attack of the devil. That gives you a clear kind of rationale reason for why this is happening to me. A global pandemic, well, it's an attack of the enemy, you know, the devil against the world or against the church. This is much easier, I think, within within a certain paradigm, assuming that you kind of buy the whole system. Uh, it makes things like a global pandemic much easier to make sense of than, you know, just like an answer that says, well, there are viruses that come along from time to time and make people really sick and die, and that's just life. And we've had to deal with this, like, forever as humans, because humans are fragile and life is unpredictable and we can't control it and we don't really know why all of these things happen. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's not a message that sells very well, uh, and so, so certainty, explanation, uh, that, that gives comfort. And we can get behind that. Uh, I remember many years ago when I was studying uh, theology, in the first couple of years of, of, of studying theology, and I was in a week-long block course, and it was centered around pastoral theology and about how, we, you know, the, the the beliefs we hold about how we care for people. And, and, and we were exploring some really practical aspects of what it looks like when uh, when we when we care for one another, particularly in kind of ministry settings, you know. And we had to do this, one of our assessments was to do this group role play, uh, and we had to do it in front of the class. So we had to go away and kind of prepare this little um, group role play, and then come and present in front of the class and be assessed on it. And and the scenario we were given was that a teenage girl in our church uh, had, this is the hypothetical scenario, a teenage girl in our church had come to her pastor with her parents to tell them that she was pregnant. Now, <laughs> immediately you might roll your eyes and be like, classic, a classic uh, conservative church Uh pastoral scenario of course that would be the one you choose but anyway no no that's a whole that's a whole other conversation to get into um, but but i just remember we had this time as a group we were talking about how we would portray this pastoral conversation to the class as a part of our assessment, and the lecturer had been talking to us all week about you know not responding with with um, to people's challenges or experiences or doubts or whatever by quoting scripture at them or by giving them pithy one-liners uh, that just sort of trying to wrap the whole thing up and tell them what the answer is or to blame them for for what had happened or anything like that. You know, the lecturer had been encouraging us to to dig deeper than that and to. Uh, to come alongside and to listen and to offer support and to ask questions and to help people navigate what they were facing. So we talked about all of this a group, and you know, one of one of the men, of course, in our group was assigned to be the pastor in our role play. And so we all talked together about how he was going to respond to 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 this revealing of this news, and he was going to ask questions, and he was going to be supportive, and uh, and so we figured out what each of us would say in this little presentation. And then we got in front of the class and we began to you know perform our pre-organized role play for everyone and the person who was playing the teenage girl started confessing her pregnancy to the pastor and the guy playing the pastor just couldn't help himself he was just caught up in the moment and he just clicked into pastor mode and um all his defaults started coming out. He, he 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 responded immediately with, well, you know, actually what the Bible says. And he quoted the scripture. And then he started saying all of these really concrete and non-empathetic things. And the rest of us were like, wait, wait, that's not the conversation. That's not the preparation we made. And he wasn't doing it on purpose to sabotage. I think he just, he just slipped into pastor mode in the moment and he couldn't get out of it. It was kind of, it was like well-worn tracks that he couldn't escape. And I think uh, that kind of experience... <laughs> happens a lot, uh, sort of laughing because it's kind of tragic, you know, like it's tragically funny, but it is tragic because people have those kind of experiences with those in power in the church all the time. Uh, if you're someone, for example, who's tried to process maybe questions or doubts or deconstruction uh, with leaders or pastors or family members or friends who have this very fixed and concrete kind of faith, you might know it exactly what that feels like to be responded to and spoken to in this kind of way. It's like running into a brick wall when you're looking for... An embrace or a hug. And it doesn't matter kind of what your experience has been or the things that you're wrestling with, or the same lines just get rolled out, the same scriptures and the same unwavering beliefs. I remember sitting in my pastor's office one day, many years ago, and I had shared some concerns and some questions I had about a few things that I'd been observing and contemplating. And I was kind of early on in the beginning of my deconstruction kind of journey, uh, and I've been doing some study. And so lots of questions were coming to the surface and lots of kind of curiosities and and concerns. And so I shared a couple of those and the response to me was indeed to quote a scripture. Uh, And it was a scripture from the book of James uh, telling me that I was either suffering from or causing or both some kind of demonic confusion. And, you know, what do you do with that? How do you respond to, to a quoting of the Bible that tells you you're causing demonic confusion? It's, it's um, you know, it shuts, it certainly shuts things down. Uh, but it's coming from a place which says, no, we have things figured out. And so your questions are obviously just an attempt to, to disrupt what God is trying to do. And, and what do you do with that? And beyond the specifics of, again, my specific experience there, these kinds of things happen all the time across the world of church and ministry. And it's not to say that church work and ministry is easy. It's complex and it's challenging. Uh, but This kind of rigid and immovable structure of belief and a rigid and immovable institution can actually cause real harm to people. And of course, with this kind of thing, there are power issues at play. Often those with power are scared of change because it disrupts the system they have control over. Uh, and, and so over the years, we have situations where Christians have used their faith and their power to try and keep slavery a thing, for example, or to continue upholding oppression of women or to keep marginalizing and excluding uh, LGBTQI, People. But aside from sort of the power dynamics of these issues, which we've covered a lot on these podcasts and spoken about again recently, I think there's again a bigger underlying problem in the belief structure itself. And that's the idea of this faith system, a belief system, a religious tradition, whatever language we want to give that. That's based on the assumption that we can lock this all down to a set of beliefs, truths, and ideas, and anything outside of that is appealed to as some kind of just mystery and unknowable, and don't ask questions about that. And don't really ask questions about the core fundamentals. Either. So just don't ask questions. Um, yeah, you can, you can embrace all sorts of change, change the music, change the lights, change the technology, change the language that we use, change the clothes, but don't mess with those core fundamentals. And what this tells us, I think, if this is our way of believing, is that we think that one of the main aspects of faith or of spirituality itself is that things are fundamentally the same, unchanging, static. And some of this actually comes back to our belief about God. Uh, A long way back in the podcast, I think one of the very first episodes, I talked about our views of God and how often within the Christian tradition, especially when it drew on some aspects of Greek philosophy, uh, they developed this view of God as the static, unmoved, perfect God. For God to be perfect meant that God was unchanging. And for God to be unchanging meant that God couldn't even really be moved with real empathy or compassion or genuinely impacted or affected by creation itself. And even if people wouldn't necessarily quote that back to you. They wouldn't say, ah, yes, I believe in a God who is, you know, not affected and unmoved, and the unmoved mover. Uh, and I take that from Aristotle and I appreciate the way that it was built on within the Christian tradition by such giants as Augustine and Aquinas. You know, people aren't necessarily going to say that. Uh, but when you dig, you realize, oh, there's some very, very sort of concrete views about God here. And this idea that God is unchanging, unmoved, God knows everything that's going to happen, so God is this kind of perfect, unchanging, um, concretized kind of reality, and if God doesn't, you know, doesn't change at all isn't impacted by us and it doesn't really matter when we dip into history, whether it be in the ancient texts of the Old Testament or into the New Testament or the 21st century, we're fundamentally dealing with a God who is revealed as the same, right, yesterday, today and forever and if we read the Bible through that lens too every time we see God represented we are seeing this unfiltered and pure view of that unchanging God because scripture is divinely inspired and it's pretty much like God wrote it and then so the basis for our views of God and our views of the world and of humanness and of our challenges and even then into our ethics, this is all grounded in a very static and unchanging view of God and therefore of the world. So you might have an experience, but if it doesn't fit this very concrete narrative, this very concrete scripture, perhaps, uh, or the very concrete faith system we've built around a very concrete God, well, then you just need to reject your experience. And so there's three things I want to say about all of that and also offer some suggestions for an alternative, more dynamic way of thinking about things. Um, So the first thing I want to talk about is this how this um, static and concrete view of God impacts on our, the kind of belief and spirituality that we hold. Because when we have this very fixed system, when, when God is very fixed in our minds, we know exactly what we're dealing with and everything that flows out of that is very concrete and fixed. The truths we hold are very, you know, these are the fundamentals. When well, faith becomes essentially about staying close to those fundamentals, to the orthodoxy however we define it. And so what we end up seeing within the church is just lots of arguments about the nature of those fundamentals. Lots of conversations about where those lines of orthodoxy are, who is in and who is out based on what they believe. We've seen massive disruption in the tradition of the church um, over points of theological belief and what people were claiming were the fundamentals or not, or orthodox or not. You know, in the 11th century, um, the East and the West, the the Western, what became what we know as the the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, and the East, which we know as kind of Greek Orthodoxy and Russian Orthodoxy and and, and Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, you know, they split over what's called the Filioque clause, which is um, a statement in the Nicene Creed where it talks about the fact that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And Augustine, in the in the fourth fifth century, uh, said. He wanted to add the words and the son so that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. And the East said, no, we don't want those three words in there. And the West said, yes, we do. And by the time you get to the 11th century, along with lots of political power plays and so on, the church tears itself in half over that issue of whether those three words should be in the creed or not. (sighs) You know, and that happens over and over again. The Protestant church, which had some very... um, you know, admirable reasons for for the protest against Catholicism continues to protest against itself in lots of ways. And so we continue to split and split and split and split over lots of things that we believe, Um, not necessarily because of how those differences shape the way that we live and treat one another, but because, you know, because I think there are valid reasons to part ways sometimes when those beliefs radically shape the way that we treat one another, Um, especially when there are justice issues concerned there. But if it's just a matter of the fact that you believe, you know, this about the framing of uh, something about God, something about an abstract belief system, um, and 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 someone else believes something slightly different, and we end up having to split ways because we've defined orthodoxy differently, well, it tells us that our our whole orientation of our faith has become narrow, closes us in, closes us down, the walls come in, we become. Um, you know, faction-minded, and so it's it's them and us within our tradition itself. Let alone with with the with the heathens, right? With the heathens outside the church who who don't believe any of this. And so, what breeds from this is a narrow and kind of judgmental faith, um, unable to cope with experiences that that maybe push against the beliefs that we've got. Sometimes we get the development of a, of a, an internal logic system that's very effective at kind of self explaining why things are happening. So, um, like I said before, maybe maybe it's when you know you believe that that God wants to bless you, but then you suffer, but then the suffering is rationalised as a test to increase your blessing later on, or the suffering is something that the devil's doing because you are. Um, such a threat to the enemy. Uh, and you're going to be so blessed by God that the devil's attacking. You know, all, all these different ways of really trying to justify why your life ends up looking pretty similar to others. <laughs> uh, you get these internal logic systems, that these little loops of thought uh, that just loop around. And they're very hard to break open. Uh, sometimes someone will have an experience, and you may be one of those, who's broken open that logic loop. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. This actually doesn't satisfactorily answer my question. Um, but, you know, often what happens, certainly at an institutional level, is a, is a battening down of the hatches, so to speak. An unable, an inability to cope with those experiences that sit outside of the systems and of belief that we've built. And then often, in that very narcissistic way, we push that blame outward and judgment onto the person who's the experiencer of it. Um, so... The the first thing I want to say about uh, what this kind of concrete God with a concrete world where everything's very static and unchanging, what it does is it it shapes our faith in very narrow judgmental ways where we're just seeking to justify what it is that we believe and to divide with one another uh, over our definitions of orthodoxy. The second, and perhaps this is more important than the first, if that's possible, uh, is that this shapes our, our view of reality itself. Um, you know, if, if this is the way that we think about God, the unchanging one, the unmoved one, uh, if this is the way that we think about the world, here are the beliefs, this is the way it is, these are the things you are to believe, this is the point of your life. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus died, rose again, so that you might be saved and go to heaven one day and your purpose in life is to just convince as many other people of that as, as possible. And You know, for example. Very concrete system, uh, kind of deals with all the major questions (laughs) uh, and locks it all down. Well, this starts to actually inform our views of of reality itself. We start to see everything as as a bit more fixed than it really is. We have a a God who knows everything that will ever happen in the future. So there's kind of an inevitability to life. People can become targets for our truth, for our conversion tactics, especially if the very concrete system we hold to does have these defined, you know, has defined salvation in these very binary in and out terms. People are kind of our targets to get them in, which can end up defining so much about how we approach people and see people. And, you know, I don't doubt that this can be motivated by love, can be genuine and can be caring. I I mean, I'm describing myself here and for significant parts of my life. And I remember loving people, you know, so much, being so worried for them because they were out and I wanted them to be in and I wasn't trying to dominate them or oppress them. I was hoping to save them because I loved them. So... This is not like an attack on everyone who sees the world through this lens as if they're terrible people. I just think, you know, at its best, I guess, it's just a, a very thin way to see people, to see life, to see the world, you know, as if it's all some big cosmic test just with this plan to get to heaven one day and it kind of hollows out the depth of meaning from real human experience and hollows out the depth of meaning and the beauty and wonder of the cosmos that we inhabit and that we are a part of. We end up with this very thin shallow, hollow construct for seeing reality uh, that that sucks the mystery and the wonder and the beauty out of it uh, and turns it into sort of target practice, you know. So that's the second thing. The first is how faith kind of becomes about the fundamentals, about orthodoxy, and it becomes narrow and judgmental and divisive. The second is that it shapes our view of the world around us and so everything just becomes kind of hollowed out and thin. And the third thing is where I guess it really starts to impact us, which is that it, it impacts the way we approach our ethics. Um, and, you know, ethics might be a, a word you don't use a lot, but ethics is something you do all the time. And ethics is ultimately about how we discern, uh, you know, what we believe are the, the right and wrong things to, to be and to do in the world. How do we behave? How do we live? How do we make judgments about what the right course of action is or about uh, what to do in a given situation? And when you have a very concrete belief structure, then then often we struggle to adapt to the new information that comes in. You know? So um, there's a couple of different ways, uh, there's a few different ways of thinking about ethics. Uh, two in particular, w- one is consequentialist, um, which you'll see something like utilitarian ethics falls within this, for example, which is really in a kind of an, ends justifies the means kind of ethics. In other words, as long as the outcome is good, it doesn't really matter what we did to get there. Uh, And so, um, you know, there's something like a a just war theory where we can justify going to war and committing acts of real violence and killing. uh, But ultimately, the ends are to defeat the enemy so that we might have peace. And so the ends justify the means. So that's a consequentialist um, kind of ethic. Uh, pushing back against that because we can see how that maybe might be used in some very uh, un or harmful ways uh, is something called deontological ethics. And deontological ethics is say, says rather than the being about ends justify the means, this is more about the way things have, have been sort of deigned to be by God, if you like. So it's about the way things are in themselves and so deontological ethics, unlike consequentialist, which, which is asking what are, what are the outcomes, or well, deontological ethics is saying, no, well, what, is, what is the fundamental nature of things? And, and so, you know, we might get um, views on women, for example. And we might say, well, God has created women and men differently uh, and so that's just the way it is. So it almost doesn't matter the outcome. Uh, this is just the way that it is. Uh, for example, you'll see that in quite patriarchal forms of Christianity. God has just created men to be uh, rulers over women or to be the head of the home. And that's just the way it is. You can come up with all sorts of arguments as to why you don't think that's right or why you think that's oppressive or all sorts of stuff. But ultimately, we believe that's the way God has made things to be and therefore that's the way things are. So that's a much more deontological approach to ethics. You'll see this a lot in the conversations around LGBT, uh, QI communities uh, within the church where we're where Christians, ethicists might say, who are conservative on this issue, will say, well, that's just, you know, God has not created um, human beings like that. And so anywhere we see someone um, with um, fluid gender identity or non-binary or different sexuality, well, they're going against God's design. They're going against the way God created things to be, right? So that's a very deontological ethical system. And it's pretty, you know, I mean, what, how do, you, how do you debate that? Because you can't say, well, look at all the suffering that it causes. And they're like, well, that's very unfortunate, but that's just the way things have, have been. So we want to be kind to you and, and loving. And the best way we can be loving is to tell you that you're not supposed to be like that. Um, and so when you have a very concrete view of God and when you have a very concrete view of your faith as kind of believing the fundamentals, then your ethics often take that very deontological um, shape to them as well. This is the way God has made things to be. These are the rules. This is how it works. And so we've just got to kind of fit in with that and squeeze our life into that mold. So what can I offer as a kind of alternative to all of that in the last few minutes of this episode? Uh, Well, I don't want to offer just sort of one way of responding, you know, one perfect answer to this because that would be far too concrete. And I don't want to do that. But I also don't want to just leave us floating in the wind either. Um with nothing to hold on to, because I think in recent times we've seen what can happen in a vacuum and when people start just grasping in anything that comes along. But one of the questions we've been exploring at times throughout this podcast is, is to ask the question, you know, what if we were to see God as genuinely responsive, genuinely moved by us? Actually, we might even say genuinely changed by relationship with us. What if God doesn't or hasn't set the future in stone? Uh, what if What if when God encounters us in relationship, that relationship is real and genuine, and God experiences grief and pain and and joy and love? What if God, because God hasn't set everything in stone, is genuinely changed by the nature of God's relationship with us? You know, how would this actually start to open up the shape of our spirituality and then and then the implications of that. You know, what if our belief system then was less about the sort of fixed, concrete set of fundamental beliefs and in the in-out categories and instead was trying to tune in to this kind of dynamic and loving relational sense of the divine, of God, and then to see how this actually reshapes our view of reality itself, of world, the entire cosmos becomes this participation in God's loving, dynamic, and responsive presence fills life with meaning here and now it's not just about some eternal future somewhere in heaven and just getting everyone across the line every person we meet isn't a target for conversion or someone we need to get in from being out but every person is is kind of like a universe in themselves you know mysterious and complex and worthy of coming to know and in the christian tradition we would say even to love and even to extend that love towards those who are down and out and even to extend it further to those who might even be considered our enemies so here's this kind of orientation to life that says, actually, what if reality is open and filled with possibility? What if God isn't controlling everything as some kind of sovereign overlord? But what if, And what if the future is, isn't set? What if God is loving? Yes, and that doesn't change. But fills reality with the possibilities of what it looks like for that love and beauty to be made real. And then we have an opportunity to respond to that calling and to that movement toward love perhaps then the birth and the life and the death and, and maybe even the resurrection of Jesus becomes this radical invitation to see the world this way. Of seeing uh, then the challenges um, that are unjust and are oppressive in the world. Uh, we see those as things to be torn down because they squash people. That turn people into objects and tools and things to be used or discarded, and so we advocate for justice and liberation because this is, in fact, the movement of God in the world, and so it is the movement of the world itself. And this is a God who deeply cares and who loves and who um, has compassion and calls us into that way of being. Um, you know, I think this opens us up to to yes, knowing knowing something. I don't I don't think the I don't think just everything is a mystery is, is enough for me. I, I do want to grab onto something, to hold onto something meaningful. Um, one of the theologians, though, that I, that I engage with a lot when I was doing, a, in particular my doctorate, uh, Amos Yong, talks about the idea of a, of a fallibilistic epistemology. Isn't that just the greatest phrase, the greatest term you've ever heard? Fallibilistic epistemology. Uh, basically, basically what it means is this. Epistemology is to do with how and what we know. And so Jung suggests that yes we can we can know things, but that we must also must always have a sense of fallibility to that. What we know is must be open and tested with real experience and everything that we know is always open to being tested and challenged and changed by new information and so even if we've got kind of a working model for the way that we might see the world and the way that we might see ourselves and, and God and so on. We actually remain open to that being changed and shifting and responsive to the real world experience of, of, of real people. Which means that actually as we encounter other people, we're not trying to squeeze them into our kind of little framework of fundamentals. We're exploring reality itself. We're exploring with curiosity and openness and, and, and genuine love for the other that we might actually be changed and receive as much as we are able to give or offer anything. And then even when this comes to our ethics, uh, rather than having to choose between either a consequentialist ethic, which is all about ends justify the means, or a deontological ethic, which is just God says it's this way and so that's the way it is and these things are fixed. uh, There's another ethical tradition within, within Christianity, which is that of virtue ethics, and it actually does stem from uh, some engagement between Christianity and Greek philosophy. And virtue ethics is not about sort of all the, all the concrete rules that God has written in the sky, but it's actually about what kind of people we are. What are the virtues that we want to cultivate in our lives? And how might they shape then the kinds of people we become and therefore the kinds of decisions we make and the actions we perform? And in the New Testament, in fact, you see some of the writers engaging with this idea of virtue ethics. Um, sometimes agreeing with some of the Greco-Roman uh, virtues, and sometimes subverting them as well. Sometimes offering, you know, the, the embrace of kind of humility and of service and of inclusion of the marginalised. This is this is something that pushes against the kind of virtues uh, that are held within the Greco-Roman Empire. Uh, and and so what we see even within the New Testament story is because they're being shaped by this way, this question of what kind of person am I becoming, right? Which is which is even the, the primary question for Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't about rules and God said this and God said that. It's about what kind of person do you want to be? Don't think about sort of how close to the line can I get before I step over it and, and you know, where's where is the line and what's the rules? Actually, what kind of person do I want to be? And so we see that movement within the New Testament uh, as people start to get included into the story because actually, this is not about the fact that there's a, there's, a, there's a rule that says the Gentiles can't be in because actually uh, this, there's, there's something innovative going on here. There's something adaptive going on that says, no, actually welcome the Gentiles in and they don't even have to follow the Torah. They don't have to be circumcised, which was a big deal in the first century. Um, and that actually, what we see there is this kind of innovative and improvisational approach to ethics saying, okay, here's the story of Jesus that offers us a vision for the kinds of people we could be in the world. How can we let that reshape us and change us? Um, and, and that's an ongoing, dynamic, fluid process. And I think it actually helps if we see it that way. Help us move towards things like pulling apart patriarchal systems of oppression. Helps us pull apart the historic exclusion and and oppression of LGBT people within the church. Um, and so even when I read the New Testament itself, when I read someone like the Apostle Paul, um, who, you know, uh, is a... <laughs> a figure who has there are various opinions on Paul. Let's say that. It's probably it's probably likely that not Paul didn't write all of the things attributed to him in the New Testament. But nevertheless, I'm not I'm not as interested in agreeing with every one of Paul's conclusions and applying that across all people everywhere for all time. But I am kind of interested in what Paul is trying to do in a lot of his letters. And what he's trying to do is to take the story of Jesus and say, how does this shape the kind of virtues that we want to embody and live with. And then what does that mean for these very real situations that we're facing? And, you know, Paul is a man who lived 2,000 years ago in a different context and a different time in a different place who knew different things than we do. Uh, and on some things, you know, knew a lot less than we do. I think it's okay to say that. And so sometimes I'm going to come to different conclusions than Paul, but I'm still interested in what he's trying to do. And that's a conversation I want to be a part of. So in all of this, there's this responsiveness, this fluidity. God is this genuine relational, uh, you know, moving divinity rather than static and fixed and concrete and unaffected. Uh, The story of Jesus, the movement of a loving divine presence in and through the world actually opens us up. It can open us up in a view of God and therefore a view of the world, a willingness to learn. Uh, an openness to possibility in every moment. A life filled, hopefully, with some kind of meaning and wonder instead of just narrowness and judgment and thinness. Uh, that is, I think, uh, the best of what our Christian faith can offer us in a time when we need possibility and hope and some openness in the world. So, uh, that's all for today's episode of In The Shift. Thanks, as always, to Rhys Michelle for his skill in taking this audio signal and turning it into something suitable for your ears. Until next time.